If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to John, John chapter 13. And let us begin with a word of, of prayer. Our Father, in the name of Jesus, we come and give thanks to you, for your grace and for your mercy. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, and for loving us the way you have and continue to do. Father, we thank you for the hope that is so certain that we have of going one day and being with you. And so, Father, as we sit before your word and think about what you have said to us, please, please help me. Please give me a heart that is sensitive and submissive to the leading of your spirit. Please help each person to give their ears to what you have to say. Make your appeal, Father, through me to the hearts of your people. And by your word, please teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness. Make us more like Jesus than we have ever been before. Father, you alone are able to bring this about, and we pray that you would for your glory and for your worship, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we have been in a series leading up to Easter, and um, the series entitled Victorious Living. And that's what Easter is about. That's what the resurrection of Jesus is about. It's about the victory that he has and has won not only for himself and for the glory of God, but for everyone who believes and trusts in him. And uh, last week, as you may recall, we spoke about ruthless repentance, to show no mercy to our sins and to, to turn away from them and to turn to God in a daily and a regular basis. And perhaps the only proper response, having turned from sin, is a life of radical love life of radical, self-forgetting, self-sacrificing love. And that is the subject of John 13, and it's the subject we want to look at this morning. And um, to the end, that, that our Christ-like love, it should be in the outline, our Christ-like love for each other would change the world for the glory of God. So let's begin reading in John uh, chapter 13 at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Let's stop there for a moment. I want to look at the subjects of this sermon and begin with uh, what we must know to love like Jesus, followed by what we must do to love like Jesus, and concluding with what we must be to love like Jesus. First, what we must know to love like Jesus. This passage begins with a recounting of the Passover. The Passover was days away, and God's people were getting ready They were getting a a lamb ready. They were getting their house ready. They were getting their minds ready, recalling the exodus out out of Egypt, out of bondage, recalling the Redeemer, the Liberator, who had brought them out from under the the thumb of Pharaoh. And they were thinking about this and thinking about uh, the God who had delivered them and how he had, by the blood of the lamb, uh, brought them out of bondage and out of slavery and And Jesus himself, no doubt, was thinking about himself as the Passover lamb. And how thinking about himself as the Passover lamb, by definition, meant he was not thinking about himself, he was thinking about others. He was thinking about spilling his own blood for the salvation of other people who had sinned against the the king. And And so in this particular passage, you have... Uh, this this recalling of of Passover. It's not Passover at this point, but it's about to be Passover. It's right before Passover. And and Jesus Jesus was about to demonstrate in symbolic form uh, the great love that He would literally do on Calvary when He demonstrated the love of God by giving His life for for His people. But Jesus had to know some things, according to this passage, that led him to Calvary. And and the first thing that he knew uh, is that he knew his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father. He knew that in his mind. He knew that he was about to leave here. Earlier, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it was about his death for others. It was about his death so that others might live. Recall what he says in John 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. All through the gospel according to John up to chapter 12, Uh, there's these little statements, his hour had not come, his hour had not come, and then in chapter 12, it finally says, his hour had come. His hour had come, and he immediately associates that with his death on the cross in order that other people might live. And that's what he's thinking about and contemplating. In another place, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
This troubling hour was about him being lifted up from the earth on a cross to die for sinners so that all manner of people might be drawn to him. And so the hour as he contemplated his hour, he was contemplating those for whom he came to die. He was contemplating his demise on this earth. God sent him to a cross to die. Earlier, later on, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you by giving eternal life. Giving eternal life is giving the knowledge of the one and true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent to die and give his life as a ransom. And so when, when, when he says here uh, his, his, he knew his hour had come to depart from this world, and go back to the Father. It is about His death on the cross, His being lifted up so that others might come to know God. The writer of Hebrews says like this, uh, because of the joy set before Jesus Christ, He endured the cross despising the shame. He endured the cross despising the shame. It means that the shame of the cross was of little significance compared to what he was about to enter into when he went back to his father. The glory that would be his again, the glory he had before the creation of the world, and the joy set before him was that glory, and it was also seeing each one of you with him in glory, beholding his people in glory, glorified, glorifying the only true God. And like Jesus, we, we must leave this world too. You and I are going to depart this world one day and go to our Father's house. And because that is true of Christ and true of, of, of you, uh, Jesus says like this, if any man, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me Jesus was going to die. If anyone would come after Jesus, if anyone would come after him, he must die to himself daily, it says in Luke chapter 9. Whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there, my servant will be. Jesus' hour had come. Our hour is always right now. We're called to daily die every single day to our sin, every single day deny ourself, lay down our life so someone else might know about eternal life, that they might see the glory and the majesty of God reflected in snapshots in and through our lives as we as we love, but, but you've got to know that your hour has come, that you're about to depart and go be with the Father in the glory of the Father in order to love radically. Not only that, notice what it says in verse 2. Jesus knew that he hadn't he was about to go to his father, but during this time, 
It says the devil had already entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot. When God calls you to love radically in a self-forgetting, self-sacrificial way, it's always love in this world in a context of betrayal, in a context of brokenness, in a context of sinners, that God calls us to love in the midst of sinners, in the midst of transgressors, that Judas was there as Jesus was contemplating going to the Father. Jesus was prepared to show love to betrayers and traitors and Judases. And yet Jesus, it says he loved his own to the very end. I would venture to say that's the only way you can serve God. That's the only way you can be ready to meet God is if you're ready to love his own in the midst of brokenness in the midst of sin. It's easy to love when everybody's on your side and everybody's saying the right things and giving you compliments and encouraging you. It's easy to love in that context, and we don't even do that that well. But in the context here, Jesus is in the midst of a betrayer, the midst of an enemy. And there's often always enemies within the context of the body of Christ. They're not part of the body of Christ, but they're antagonistic to the body of Christ. They look like, sound like a Christian, but in their hearts, they're not. And it's in that context that God calls us to voluntarily give up our life to show love. And that's part of what makes God's love radical is that we're loving people in this world with their brokenness and their sinfulness. It's easy to love in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. But it's loving in this world, in this sinful world, with our sinful hearts. It's being patient and being kind, and not being rude and not being arrogant, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. It's loving in a broken context. What's it like to love when you're being betrayed, when you're overlooked, when you're being taken advantage of? The Bible goes on to say, like if I was, re if I was writing this passage, and thank God he didn't ask me to write it, I wouldn't have put verse 2 just there. Um, but God did to show us that it's in a particular context that he calls us to love. But look at the next verse. No traitor, no betrayal, no, no, no sin of anyone else can rob you of anything. It says Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus had every single thing in his hands. Nothing can be robbed from God's people. It's the same with you. Every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is your possession in Christ Jesus. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. No matter what uh, trouble there might be, nobody can rob you. You're in Christ. You're his child. You're an heir of God. You're a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. 
What Christ has, you have. You have all things in Jesus Christ. It doesn't make a difference who opposes you or what way they oppose you. My Bible says no weapon that's formed or fashioned against you will triumph. and You will refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. He who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. Do you believe that today? The Bible says that God says that if God is for you, who can be against you? Not only that, but Jesus knew that, that he was from God. He was from God. And, 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 and in some way, it's true of you as well, is it not? You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You have been born from God. You've been born of the Spirit of God. The Bible says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because he has been born of God. And, and what he's saying in 1 John 3 is that he's calling us to love one another. In that context, it's a context of loving one another. That's what he means by saying no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. And he cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. And immediately after that, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. The passage that was read for our scripture reading. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith, faith in Jesus Christ. No traitor will triumph over you. Jesus said the thief only comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one can pluck you out of Jesus' hand. You've got to know this in order to love radically. You've got to know this about yourself. You're headed for glory. Everything has been given to you. You come from God. He lives inside of you. And you're going back to God. That's what it says here in verse Three, that Jesus knew he was going back to God. You also are headed for glory. Jesus said in the next chapter of John, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. You are going to God. There is a mansion in the sky, a real estate that was created by Jesus that you don't owe any payments on. You don't have a need for the down payment. The down payment has been given. The down payment is the Holy Spirit. And this knowledge is what enabled Jesus to rise up 
and lay aside his outer garments and wrap himself with a towel and pour water in a basin and start washing the feet of sinful people. And you get that imagery in your mind and you the roads in Palestine were always dusty and dirty and sometimes people walked in dung. Have you ever walked in dung? It's funny. It's not really funny when it happens, but it's, it's funny when you walk in it and you don't know you walked in it. And then you smell something. And you start looking at people like, who is it? <laughs> and then you go someplace by yourself and you notice that the smell followed you. Then you look down and it's like, oh, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of being clean, right? And so, so but, but the roads were dirty and dusty, and for Jesus, your Savior, to take, out his, take off his outer garment, this is a picture of the incarnation. It's a picture of Calvary, that he left his place in glory, seated among the saints, and he laid aside his outer garments, and he, he did what even a disciple was never required to do of his rabbi. In ancient Near Eastern culture, disciples were never required to wash their rabbi's feet. This was something that was reserved for the lowest servant in the house. The servant in the lowest place is who did this. Sometimes, often it was even Gentiles who would do this. And But Jesus took that place. He took the lowest place of all to wash sinful people's feet. And you get the imagery of Jesus having a towel wrapped around him. And the towel is covered with our filth and with our smell and with the refuse that's ours. It's a picture of Christ bearing our sin. It's a picture of him taking the load of our guilt and our shame. And he wraps it around his waist and he claims it for himself. And he dies in our place. That's what leads you to love radically. Because you've been radically loved by Jesus Christ. And look at Simon. He's right to be awkward. The Lord of glory, down on his knees, ready to wash feet. And it's like, no, no, you're not going to do that to me. And so Jesus shows the symbolism by if I don't do this, you have no part with me. You have no share with me. You can't belong to me unless I do this for you. What does this mean in light of us? In order for us to love in a radical way, we have to allow Jesus in to the dirt, to the filth in our heart. We've got to allow Jesus in. We've got to invite him to wash us and to invite him in. It doesn't mean you sit on your feet. Say, so you're not going to do that to me. It means that you have to invite your whole self. You have to offer your whole self, your whole heart, your whole life to him. Say, here I am, wash me, clean me. We've got to invite him in. We can't sit on covered feet. We must bring our whole self to him for him to wash us. Not only that, but 
Peter's response brings out another nuance again. You have to ask yourself, why does this keep coming up? Jesus says the one who was bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. So it's the same thing. He keeps bringing up this betrayer. He keeps bringing up this traitor. You're not all clean. And perhaps that's the reason why God calls us to pray for our hearts to be clean, but, but it's also saying that Jesus Christ, with his divine love, looks right in the face of demonic hatred and washes the feet of Judas. And he honors the betrayer. He honors the traitor. How ready are you for radical love that will honor those who are in opposition to you, those who hate you, those who are devils, they have not your best interest in mind, but Jesus calls us to a radical love that says, I will honor them. I will wash their feet. I will do the menial service for their good, even though they hate me and have no interest in me and have no share with me. I'll love them still. What we must do to love like Jesus is we've got to know um, we have to understand what Christ has done for us. We have to wash one another's feet. Look at what it says in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. Here it is again. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up, lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Here it is again. And testify, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciples leaned back against Jesus, said to him, the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel... Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give someone something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. 
what you must do to love like Jesus. Uh, Jesus says he gave us an example to follow. And what does he mean by that? Does he mean that we should start a ritual of foot washing? It's not what he's talking about. Um, in the context and the culture of that day, that's what people did because that was a form of hospitality to relieve and to comfort and refresh people after a long journey. But if you're in your car having just come from your pedicure, you know, it's not probably a big deal to wash your feet, you know. They're all clean and look nice anyway. And, and, and if we started some kind of foot washing ritual, it's much easier to just go through the motions of doing that and thinking we're humble like Jesus. But it's being willing to do menial tasks for God's people and even for those who are not God's people, as Judas teaches us. It's willing to do the lowest job. It's willing to take second place. It's willing um, to get passed over in a promotion. That's hard, right? But, but it's willing to take a lower place. It's, it's willing, on a very practical level, on a daily level, to take the garbage out, to take the trash out, not because it's your turn, but because it needs to be done. You ever get the trash thing all full up? It's not my turn today. <laughs> That's crazy. Just take the trash out. Um, it's willing to change a diaper. Finders keepers, right? You've got the baby, so change the baby. Um, even if you don't have a baby and you're holding a baby, come on. <laughs> Watch it, brother, right? I know. Um, but it's willing, it's willing to do those, those menial tasks that, that no one wants to do. It's willing to go clean toilets. Right? Amen. And, um, and, 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 and willing to, to be in the lowest place of all. If Jesus, our teacher and Lord, has put himself in the lowest place, we need no other incentive, we need no other motivation to love radically like this. Jesus also wants us to deal with one another's sin because the symbolism, remember, if I don't wash you, you have no share in me. He's talking about Calvary. He's talking about being willing to invite other people into the mess that's in our hearts. That's harder than taking the trash out. But it's willing to to invite people to share our struggles and our sins and our, our burdens, our hardships, our weaknesses. It's willing to say, hey, I need your prayer about this going on in my heart, going on in my mind, going on in my life. It's willing to open up to the people of God. We don't get sanctified by ourselves. Sanctification comes within a context. And it's willing to allow brothers and sisters speak the word of truth and the word of life to the brokenness and the deadness in our hearts. Remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might wash her with the word. And then in something, chapter thir verse 32, he says something very interesting, doesn't he? He says this refers to the church. I've been talking about the church all along. Oh, but by the way, you husbands and wives can learn something about what I've been saying about the church. So that passage really is about the church as well as about husbands and wives. And it's, it's willing to be able to wash one another with the word of God where we're broken and weak. 
dealing with one another's sin because that's how we make progress. The Bible says if we confess our sins, it doesn't say to the Lord. And it says, it says if we, we, plural, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. There's something about inviting people in, not to scorn and laugh and, and be self-righteous, but to say, hey, I'm there for you. I can pray for you. I can counsel. We can counsel one another. Now, Jesus, when he washed Peter's feet, we can't do what Jesus did. We can't take the sin to the cross and die for sin, but what we can do is we can walk with one another. We can pray with one another. We can bear one another's load and burdens and sins, and we can carry one another to the cross of Jesus and remind one another of what Christ has done. We can carry one another to prayer to God, to the great intercessor, Jesus Christ, who is always living to intercede for us, and we can, we can blend our prayers with Jesus' prayers. And when we do, the Bible says the Spirit of God will change our hearts. He'll make us more like our Savior. He'll sanctify us by the truth. Thy word is truth, the Bible says. So that's what we need to do. We need to do menial tasks, but we also need to get into the mess of our lives and to share that and invite people in that we might walk together in love and in mercy. One of the radical goals of this love is missional. Look at verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. That verse cannot be separated from verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus sends a community of radical love into the world. And when the world sees that radical love taking place where believers are bearing one another's burdens and willing to take the lowest place to serve for the good of others, when the world sees that radical love, it bears witness to Jesus. It shouts loudly to the world more than any t-shirt that says, I'm a Christian, could say. It says to the world, there is a Redeemer. And you can see Him here. Can we have that kind of boldness to be able to say to the world, come here, you can see the Redeemer here. If you ever doubted that there was a Jesus, come here, you can see him here. You can see his character being shown forth in the life of his people. You can see radical love. You can see folk taking the lowest place to serve their brothers and sisters. You can see people bearing one another's burdens and carrying one another to God in prayer and seeing the Spirit work in the, in the lives and the hearts of His people. The Bible says that our, our love is supposed to be missional. It's supposed to lead people to receive Jesus and to receive the one whom Jesus sent. And again, we have to see again, this comes, comes in a, sometimes in a troubling context. Jesus is troubled in His Spirit because of betrayal. What, do you must, what must we do to love like Jesus? We must have a mourning heart like Jesus. He's troubled by the fact that there's a betrayer. He knows there's a betrayer, but it's still troubling to him. It hurts him. Do we mourn over sin like we should? It, it's troubling to Jesus. And look at the disciples. Who is it? Who is it? Let's find out. Let's get him. 
<laughs> Who's going to betray Jesus? Let's take him down, you know what I mean? They're concerned about who it is, you know? That's, that's what's emphasized here. In the other context, they say, is it I, is it I? But here, what's emphasized is who is it? And, and Jesus, notice what Jesus says. He says, it's the one I'm going to dip this morsel and give it to him. That's who it is. You have to understand something about ancient Near Eastern culture that they set, they laid on their left elbow and their feet were out there. And for Jesus to be able, to, he couldn't dip with this hand. To be able to dip with this hand, he had to hand it to someone right next to him. The person next to Jesus, that's the places of honor. You couldn't dip and easily hand it to someone in front of you. This is the place of greatest honor where Judas was. Judas was the traitor, the betrayer. He was in the greatest place of honor, right next to Jesus, at his right hand to receive from him. What love, what radical love that Jesus displayed to the traitor. That's why they got confused. They didn't know, betray, he's, what is he doing? Is he giving stuff to people? They didn't understand it. They didn't get it because he's in the most desired place of all. And Jesus is giving him a morsel and saying to him, this is love, this is radical love to the betrayer, to the traitor. And if it should say anything to us, it should say, no matter how far away you have gone from God, His love is there for you. He's willing to give you a morsel from the table. He gave it to Judas. He called him friend. Because Jesus knows that He loved Judas to the end. That's radical love that Jesus displayed even to, to Judas. It's the love that we're called to display. And not wonder, try to discover who is the mole. Who's the problem. But just be focused on the cross. Focus on the lover of your soul. And in response to that love of Jesus, how can I love? How can I honor the people of God? How can I give to the people of God? How can I take the lowest place of all? How can I display the love of Jesus so that I would be able with trembling lips to boldly say, come see Jesus in me of all people, in us. It's what is called radical love and what we must know, what we must do, what we must be to love like Jesus. Look at verse 31. When, when He had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where am I going? You cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me. Three times. 
What we must be to love Jesus is committed to the glory of Christ and the glory of God. Jesus says upon Judas' departure, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him because, because, because divine love set face to face with, with satanic hate and still showed honor, still showed love, still showed grace. People need grace. It's so easy to be annoyed at people. It's so easy to be angry at you when you're overlooked. It's so easy to get bitter. It takes the Spirit of God glorifying Christ to you to empower you and lead you to say, in spite of how I've been treated, in spite of what they said or failed to say or did or failed to do, I will love graciously. Grace means they don't deserve it. Grace means I don't deserve it. Grace means that we deserve what's worse, but we get the best. Grace means it should feel like they're getting away with something. But I'm committed to love. I'm committed to show favor because there's a, there's a, there's a God in heaven who sits on the throne and I didn't deserve grace. I didn't deserve love. I didn't deserve mercy. I didn't deserve patience, but that's what I got. I didn't pay for it. I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it, but I've got it, and I can't lose it. So I choose to voluntarily love. You choose to voluntarily love and show grace, and love feels like death. It's supposed to feel that way sometimes. When Jesus got on the cross and died. It was the greatest demonstration of love ever seen or ever will be seen. And it was death to self, death to sin. That's what it felt like. That's what it's supposed to feel like sometimes. People get on your nerves. It feels like death to love them, and that's good. It's supposed to feel that way because it's a death to you. It's a death to self-centeredness. It's a death to self-righteousness. It's a self-forgetting, self-sacrificial death. Love, rather, to, to them. It's a commitment to to the glory of God. And, and you see that in, 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 in what Jesus did for his disciples. And then he says, he says that God is glorified in him. God was glorified in Jesus Christ. The, the, the mercy, the grace, the love, the forgiveness, the patience of God was put on full display at the cross, on full display always in Jesus' life. And so now he says to his disciples, I want that same kind of love to be on display in your life. I want you to love one another as I have loved you, which is a step above loving your neighbor as yourself. But it's loving, loving the way Jesus loved us. And, and, and perhaps the, the greatest burden that we've got to get past is ourself. Isn't that right? Peter's the one who says again, I'm ready to die for you. Here's the one who said, uh, uh, you'll never wash my feet. And in other places in this context, he says, uh, I will never deny you. I'll never do that. I'll lay down my life for you. But he didn't. He was scared of a little servant girl. He was scared of the guys in the courtyard because they identified him as a follower of Jesus. And what Peter had to get past was his self-preservation. 
his glorying in himself, his looking out for himself, looking out for number one. That's what the culture tells us. You've got to look out for yourself. Nobody else will. But Peter, Peter had to learn, and you and I have to learn, in order to love radically, we have to stop the self-protection, self-preservation mindset. The Apostle Paul said it like this, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says in another place, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrificial suffering of your faith, I rejoice, and you should rejoice with me. Paul says, even if my life is wasted in ministry, that's hard, right? It is. Even if I lose my life in ministry, even if I lose my health trying to minister to others, it's okay, I rejoice. Because Jesus lost his life. He laid it down. He purposely lost his life. He volunteered to lose his life. So other people might get saved. And radical love, that's what radical love does. That's what, that's what love does. You lose your life for other people to live, for other people to have good, for other people to experience grace and mercy, for other people to experience God. It's okay. I can lose my life. And it's all right in the end. Is it? Sure it is. The present sufferings are not worth comparing, right? With the glory that shall be revealed. These, these afflictions we experience in this life are light and they're momentary. They're temporary. But there's a, there's, a, there's a weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Because you and I are going to glory and Jesus knew in the midst of all of his sufferings, in the midst of all of his hardships, in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of Peter's denial, he knew that there is a heaven to be had. There's a glory coming. I'm going to glory. You are going to glory. You're going to see Jesus. You got something else to do? You got something else on your calendar? There's nothing greater than going to see Jesus and going to see him in peace and being able... Look, that's what Jesus said. He, he said, I'm, I, it's my time to depart and go to the Father, having loved my own. Having loved my own. That's the way you know you're ready to go. I've loved my own. Love. A life of love, a life of self-forgetting, self-sacrificial, radical love. It's the only possible response appropriate to the radical love that Jesus gave to us, the way he honored and glorified us in himself with his grace. And so let's pray. Let's pray, let's look to God. I don't have a, a confession for the... Um, is that going to come up? Oh, okay, it'll come up. Okay, so I do have it. Let me pray, and then we can pray. And then we can eat. And drink. And be merry. Our Father, in Christ's name we come, we give thanks to you that we have been loved radically by Jesus Christ. We don't deserve your love, but we have your love. Father, thank you for loving us even when we were, as so many have said before, unlovely, but you loved us. 
You washed us and you cleaned us. You bore our filth to Calvary. Oh, Father, please keep that reality of Jesus' love fresh in our mind always. May it be our vision. May it fill our vision. May it be the filter through which we think, speak, and behave. Lord, help us to know what we need to know to do what Jesus calls us to do and to be here to glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.